we are studying this afternoon the eighth article of the Belgic Confession. God is one in essence, yet distinguished in three persons. So let's begin with the reading of that article. According to this truth and this word of God, we believe in one only God who is the one single essence in which are three persons really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. The Son is the word, wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, God is not by this distinction divided into three, since the Holy Scriptures teach us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have each his personality distinguished by their properties, but in such wise that these three persons are but one only God. Hence then it is, it is evident that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons thus distinguished are not divided nor intermixed, for the Father has not assumed the flesh, nor has the Holy Spirit, but the Son only. The Father has never been without his Son or without his Holy Spirit, for they are all three co-eternal and co-essential. There is neither first nor last, for they are all three one, in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. Our brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Belgic Confession has five articles on the doctrine of God. Those articles are Article 1, in which we find a list of the attributes of God, and Articles 7, 8, 9, and, or 8, 9, 10, and 11, excuse me, 8, 9, 10, and 11. In Article 8, we have the doctrine of the Trinity. In Article 9, the proof of that doctrine and in Articles 10 and 11, the explanation, uh, explanations and confessions of the deity of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Really, in a sense, we could say then that all of Articles 8, uh, or 9, 8, 9, 10, and 11 deal with the doctrine of the Trinity. So what we're going to do this afternoon is take just Article 8, and we're going to leave the proof the scriptural proof of the doctrine of the Trinity until next week. We'll take Article 9 separately. And uh, therefore, this afternoon, we'll be talking more uh, in the dogmatic terms and not making so many references to Scripture. We'll be making many references to Scripture next week, God willing. This doctrine of the Trinity, then, has uh, three parts to it. The first part of the doctrine of the Trinity is that there is only one God, of course. The second part of the doctrine of the Trinity is that there are in this one God three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the third part of the doctrine of the Trinity is that each of these persons is distinct according to his incommunicable uh, personal properties. And that's the way we're going to 
divide the first part of our discussion this afternoon. There's one God, three persons in the one God, and each of the persons is distinct according to his incommunicable properties. We begin, therefore, with a confession, our confession, and the confession of Christians uh, since the beginning of the New Testament, and in fact in the Old Testament as well, the people of God confess this, that there is only one God, only one divine being, only one divine essence. When we Christians uh, explain and expound and confess this doctrine of the Trinity, there are some, especially of course in Judaism and Islam, who accuse us of tritheism, of having three gods and of worshiping three gods, contrary, of course, to the scriptures of the Jews and contrary also to the uh, uh, writings of the Islam, the people of Islam. But this is not true. Christians have since the very beginning of the New Testament period and throughout all ages since then confessed only one God. And our confession states that doctrine here in uh, a couple of places in the article. We're going to look at just two of those places. First of all, in the very uh, first lines of the article, according to this truth and this word of God, which is the subject of the articles preceding this, of course, we believe in one only God, who is the one single essence in which are three persons. So there's a very emphatic statement of the uh, oneness of God. And you have it again at the end of that paragraph, The uh, three persons are distinguished by their properties, but in such wise that these three persons are but one only God. And we don't need, of course, to go into that in detail. We have had that explained to us many times. The scriptures are full of this truth of the oneness of God. Uh, We talked about it, in fact, when we uh, looked at the attributes of God in Article 1 of the Confession We're all very familiar with this confession. There's no need to go into detail about it. Just to point out that this is the first part of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only one God. The doctrine of the Trinity does not deny that there is one God. One divine being or one divine essence. God is one in essence. The second part of the doctrine of the Trinity is that there are three persons in the one God, in the one divine essence. Now that idea of person is quite a difficult uh, concept. And it would be, I think, impossible for me anyway to uh, give a definition of what person means. And it may even be that in... uh, the theological use of the term that we have here, there are some differences from what we mean by person in a philosophical sense or uh, in ordinary speech. But I think there are two things that we can say about this idea of person. 
First of all, the uh, idea of person sets us and uh, God and the angels as well apart from the animals. Animals are not persons. And animals are not persons because they are not conscious. That is, they are not conscious of rational creatures. And perhaps especially, they are not persons because they are not self-conscious. We are conscious not only of, uh, of, of things, but we are conscious of ourselves as individuals, as persons. We are conscious of our own rational processes. We are conscious that we think, we are conscious that we will, we are conscious um, of things, uh, and you can't say this about animals. And, And the same is true of God then. God is one who says I, if you want to put it in that way, who is who is conscious and who is self-conscious. That's one uh, thing that we mean by person. But the other thing, in, in this context, I think the more important thing about the idea of person is that it's what makes each one of us unique. So we have in common that we are all human. That's the commonality between us. But we are nevertheless unique, and what makes us unique is our person, or as we would say today, our personality. And all those things that accompany personality. We are individual in that regard. Not just part of a common uh, group, but set apart from the group by our individuality, by our personhood. And so I am I, and you are you, and there can be no confusion between us. And this is what we're talking about when we say that there are three persons in the Godhead, in the divine essence. There are three who say I, three who are conscious of themselves as separate, we use, theologians have used the word subsistences, three who are conscious of themselves as separate subsistences, not substances, but subsistences in the divine being. Three who say I, three who are set apart by their individual and incommunicable personal properties. Now before we move on to that third part of the doctrine of the Trinity, just a couple comments about this idea of person. First of all, it's important, I think, to emphasize that uh, the Holy Spirit is also a person. Sometimes there is a tendency, I think, to think of him as a, an impersonal force or an impersonal power, and even to talk about him as it. He is not it, he is a person. He, as 1 Corinthians 2 says, teaches or searches the deep things of God, and only a person can do that. He speaks, and only a person can do that. 
The Holy Spirit is a person along with the Father and the Son. He is not different from the Father and the Son in that regard. The second thing that we need to say, I think, about this is that in these, among these three persons, there is no subordination. One is not inferior to another. So we have at the very end of this article, uh, Article 8, they are all three co-eternal and co-essential. There is neither first nor last, for they are all three one in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. And the reason that this is rejected, of course, this idea of subordination of the persons one to another would indicate a kind of... um, Uh, tritheism again. We would be returning to a kind of tritheism here. That there is one is inferior to another. They are all equal in Godhead and in all the divine attributes. In their power and wisdom and righteousness and holiness and goodness and mercy and everything else. No subordination therefore of one person to another. That's, that then brings us to the um, third part of the doctrine of the Trinity, and that, that is that each of these persons is distinct according to his incommunicable properties. There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are distinct from one another according to their incommunicable personal properties. Now you can look at this these personal properties from different angles, or you can get some sense of these uh, different personal properties uh, by looking at what the scriptures have to say about these three persons. First of all, there is the fact of their names, of course. They are named Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those names indicate their incommunicable personal properties. The Father is called the Father because he begets the Son eternally. The Son is called the Son because he is eternally begotten by the Father. And the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because he proceeds from or is breathed forth by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not begotten by the Father. The Father is not breathed forth by the Son or by the Holy Spirit. They are distinct from each other in these properties. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds. Those are their personal properties. And the Confession uh, also talks about this in the article, in the second paragraph of the article, when it says this, Hence then is it is evident that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, And likewise, the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons thus distinguished are not divided nor intermixed. There's the unity of the persons in the Godhead. 
For the Father has not assumed the flesh, nor has the Holy Spirit, but the Son only. You see, there's another aspect of this which we'll come back to in a moment. But the Confession also says this in the first paragraph. It talks about these incommunicable properties in um, lines 3 and 4 and following of the article. There is one single essence in which our three persons really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then note how it describes these properties. The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. The Son is the word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Son is not the cause, origin, and beginning of all things. The Father is not the image of the Son. The Son does not proceed. The Holy Spirit is not begotten. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. So this is another uh, way of looking at these uh, uh, personal properties of the Son, of the three persons, rather. And then if you turn for just a moment to the third paragraph of Article 9, you have another angle on these incommunicable properties, but here these incommunicable properties as they're revealed in the works of God. That's on page 57. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our sanctifier by his dwelling in our hearts. Or to put it differently, the Father created us. The Son shed his blood for us. It was not the Father or the Holy Spirit who shed his blood. The Son shed his blood for us. And the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. The Son does not dwell in our hearts, nor the Father, but the Holy Spirit who was sent by the Father and the Son to us for that purpose. So you see these these individual personal properties, these incommunicable properties in the three persons that distinguish them from one another, that make them unique then. So that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, and the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but each has his own property. Those then are the three parts of this doctrine. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each each person distinct according to his incommunicable properties. Now, uh, the second thing I want to do in this uh, uh, look at the doctrine of the Trinity is uh, point out our confessional statements We have actually five confessional statements of the doctrine of the Trinity. The one we've just been looking at in the Belgic Confession. There's one also in the Heidelberg Catechism. A very brief one there. Question and answer 25 on page 23. Since there is but one divine being, 
Why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. And that question, why do you speak of three persons, arises, of course, from our confession of the Apostles' Creed. And here's our second creedal statement, or if you will, our third creedal statement in the Apostles' Creed. We confess the doctrine of the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. Those are the uh, three persons of the Trinity, and the Apostles' Creed is structured according to that doctrine of the Trinity. Three parts, one part related to each of the three persons. And the same is true of the Nicene Creed. We don't know when the Apostles' Creed was written, but it was uh, very early in the history of the Church uh, in the New Testament. The, the Nicene Creed comes from the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And this creed also is uh, structured in a Trinitarian way. It gives us a little more detail about the doctrine of the Trinity. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And then in the second paragraph, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. We have there the eternal generation of the Son. That's what it's called in dogmatics, begotten of the Father before all worlds, the eternal generation of the Son. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And that being of one substance with the Father is the same thing as saying being of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then in the fourth paragraph, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So we have um, statements of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed, in the Heidelberg Catechism, and in the Belgic Confession. And finally, the fifth one in the Athanasian Creed. And that is the most complete and most detailed uh, discussion of the doctrine of the Trinity in our creedal statements. That's found on page 14. And we begin to read there. I want to read this statement that we have here in the Creed because I think it's important, beginning with Article 3 and going to the end of the first part of that creed to Article 28. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons 
nor dividing the substance, confounding the persons means making all the persons somehow one, as uh, some of the early heresies in the Christian church did. Confounding the persons, nor dividing the substance, that is, not falling into tritheism, dividing the three persons into three essences, three beings, which would therefore mean that we worship three gods. For there is one person of the Father, and another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. Here, the uh, confession that these uh, three persons are all equal and are all one God, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For, like as we are compelled by the Christian faith, Christian truth, to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say, there are three gods, or three lords. And then the uniqueness of the persons in this final part, Articles 21 to 28. Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created. In that way he's like the Father, but begotten. And in that way he is unlike the Father. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created. In that way he's like the Father and the Son nor begotten, in that way he is unlike the Son, but proceeding. And that's his unique property, of course. So there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And then the equality of these three persons in the Godhead. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. No subordinationism. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as said before, the unity and trinity, and the trinity and unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think, thus think of the trinity. Five creedal statements, then, about the doctrine of the trinity. Obviously, our fathers considered this doctrine to be extremely important. And here, the Athanasian Creed, I think, 
uh, shows us just how important this doctrine is. The statement we just read, but also the beginning two articles, whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. We are saved by believing the Catholic faith, that is the universal faith of Christians and of believers. Which faith? Unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Here is the first article of that Catholic, that universal faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. And if we do not believe it, we cannot be saved. Before all other things, it is necessary that we hold this doctrine of the Trinity. We cannot be saved without it. And this is repeated twice more in this first part of the uh, Creed. Articles 19 and 20. Like as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. And then in 27 and 28, so that in all things as said before, the unity and trinity and the trinity and unity is to be worshipped. He therefore that will be saved must think thus of the trinity. Notice there that it says not only that in order to be saved, we must believe this doctrine of the trinity, but that we are to worship this triune God. If we do not worship this triune God, we are worshiping an idol, not the God of the Scriptures. So, in order to worship rightly, we must worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, in three persons. And in order to be saved, we must believe and confess one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now just one uh, concluding remark then about this. And that is that this doctrine of the Trinity is not a barren and unfruitful doctrine. But it's a doctrine that teaches us that God is the living God. And that as the living God, he has fellowship within himself. The three persons of the Trinity living in eternal, glorious, and perfect fellowship, one with another, communing with one another in the one divine being. You see a little bit of this, I think, in 1 Corinthians 2. When the Apostle Paul says of the Holy Spirit that he searches all things, even the deep things of God. He knows the mind of God. He searches out the mind of God. And in knowing the mind of the Father and the mind of the Son, the Holy Spirit is in fellowship with the Father and the Son. To know is to love and to have fellowship. And we see it also in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
As throughout his earthly ministry, he prayed over and over again at great length and in many different times and places to his Father, calling upon his Father in heaven in prayer, communing and having fellowship with him. That's the fellowship of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see it in the Father's words to his Son, you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. We see it in his response to the prayer of Christ, what shall I say, Father, glorify your name. And his Father telling him, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Again, that's the fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. And the great wonder of this fellowship for us is that God draws us into it. That's an amazing thing. That we, creatures that we are, so insignificant, so small in comparison to this great God, are drawn into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To know this triune God. To know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together as our God. Notice what our Lord Jesus Christ says then in John 17, verses 20 to 23. I think here we have the essence of what I've been trying to say here. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. So you, Father, are in me, I am in you, and I want them to be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And notice again, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. You gave me glory, your own glory. I gave them that same glory, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, as you have loved me. That's the glory of our salvation in Christ, that we have fellowship with this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because the Father is in the Son, and the Son in the Father, and we one in them. May God bless us through his word.